Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to Genesis 38. Genesis 38, as we continue to walk through the book of Genesis, as you're finding your place there, I do want to welcome uh, Reach Church DeSoto joining us live this morning, and so we're grateful that they're with us, and also the venue service meeting down the hall, and uh, as Pastor Bill mentioned earlier, I'm sure many of you joining us online, and we're grateful uh, that you're participating. Uh, Before we get into Genesis 38, a few weeks back, we had a baby dedication, And we've begun to do this year baby dedication a little different way. Um, One of the things that um, we have seen is we're having more and more families participate in baby dedication, which is a positive thing. But oftentimes when we do that on Sunday morning, it had gotten to a place where I really felt like we were just bringing these families in really quickly, reading their names, and then sending them out the door. it really was the heart of our children's ministry team and, and my heart as well that we spend some time with these families and give them an opportunity to really dedicate themselves and their families to this task of raising their children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. So we've begun to do this on Saturday mornings, but we wanted to give you an opportunity to participate as well and to rejoice with these families in, in their dedication of their children to the Lord and themselves to this task. And so occasionally, from time to time, we'll watch these videos that let you know these families that are participating in this. So we're going to watch a quick video. Uh, Go ahead and play that video for us now. One of the signs of a healthy church are weddings, baby dedications, and baptisms. And we have all three going on. It's a sign of a healthy church. We're so excited. We rejoice with these families. Probably the most special part of that Saturday morning was seeing those families gather around a table. Parents and grandparents were all there gathered together and having an opportunity to pray together. And these parents to commit themselves to the task. And then they would write a letter. All of them had a letter they wrote to their child and uh, just committing themselves to raising them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Special time. Some of you, you have a child now, or you have one on the way, and you're saying, well, I'd like to participate in something like that. Well, you can. We have a baby dedication class coming up at the end of the month here, and it's required. You've got to do that first, because our job is to partner with you as parents. Uh, to help uh, equip you to be the disciple maker of your children that God has called you to be. So we require a class, and then you come to the baby dedication. It's kind of the culmination of that process. So if you'd like to participate, you can go to the website. You can find all the information about that there. Well, let's dive in this morning right into Genesis 38. So let's just read this text as we begin this morning. Genesis 38, beginning in verse 1. And it says, uh, and it came about at that time, now this is obviously the time Joseph has been sold into slavery in Egypt. He's entering into Potiphar's house. At that time, Judah departed from his brothers. You got 
brothers going in different directions, and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. And then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah, and it was at Chezeb that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. And then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought, I'm afraid that he may too die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. It was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, therefore, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. She said, moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judas sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who is by the road at Enaim? But they said, There's been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There's been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she's also a child by harlotry. And then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And it was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I'm with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Judah recognized them and said, she's more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not have relations with her again. It came about at that time that she was giving birth, that behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand, that behold, his brother came out. And then she said, What a breach you've made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. Father, we pray that you would bless the study of your word this morning. God, in this passage that seems so out of place, may we learn more about you. May we learn more about your love and your grace. God, draw us to yourself by means of your word and your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, how about that for a Valentine's Day text? <laughs> Pulled it off perfectly, timed this thing out great. No, we did not plan this out. Uh, you know what we do here at Lenexa Baptist. We just preach through the Word of God. And if you're like me, having just heard that passage, I know many of you have already read it, you're probably wondering, why in the world is this chapter here? You know, this is one of those chapters that you come to. In fact, there's often places in God's Word where you say, God, why'd you include? Can't we just blot this portion out and not talk about it? But don't you love this about God? He includes all the warts and all the wrinkles and all the missteps. And I have found oftentimes it's in chapters like these that we really learn more about the heart of the God we serve. And so you look at this text and you got this story of Joseph and then it's interrupted with this story of Judah and just about every kind of sin that you could possibly imagine. Just pick a sin and we can talk about it on the basis of this chapter. It's all right here. But you know, the more you study this, the more you begin to see that this chapter is just illuminating the themes that we've continued to see throughout the book of Genesis. You know, I I tell you, I've had more fun preaching through the book of Genesis than I've ever had preaching. Because when you study Genesis, you see God for who he is. Not the God that you think he is, but the God that he really is. And what you see as we continue to study this book is that God is not some just just little slave sitting on a little block that you vote for. No, he is sovereign. He is sovereign over all creation and every detail of history. And even the evil intentions, even the evil actions of his own children cannot stop him from fulfilling his perfect will. Nothing will stop him from fulfilling his purposes and his promises will come to fruition. It's a theme we're seeing run throughout Genesis. And then beyond that, not only do we see God for who he is, guess what we see? We see ourselves for who we are. If Judah's story sounds familiar, it should, because to some extent it's our story. What we're seeing in Genesis is that these men, even God's chosen family, they're sinners. Man is sinners. We see this from Genesis 3 moving on, that man, apart from God, is in a place of hopelessness. This man can't save himself. He is too far gone. And his only hope is the grace of God that will save him. So we see the sinfulness of man. You know, the more you you study the book of Genesis, the more you realize, if I were God, I wouldn't take any of these guys. And that's the beauty of this. God shouldn't take any of us. All that we deserve is death and hell. But God is pleased to take some. And not just to take us. And to lay hold of us by his grace. But to change us. And to mold us. You want some good news today? If you're God's child, he will not let go of you. You want some bad news today? If you're God's child, he will not let go of you. What he starts, he always completes. That's what we're seeing. And and we're intended just to stand amazed in the grace of God. And that, that's what we'll see 
in Judah's story. You know, when you think about Judah, very rarely do I think, and I know this is, I'm maybe just speaking on my own behalf, but when you think of Judah, you rarely think of Genesis 38. That's not the first thing that comes to mind when you think of Judah. I think when you think of Judah, the first thing that comes to mind is when you get to the end of, of Genesis, in Genesis 49, and Jacob is pronouncing the blessings upon his son. You'll remember what, what happens. He goes through the sons, and what you clearly see there, what are we seeing? God is in, in this elect line. You, you, you see that the, the focus is narrowing. God made a promise a child's going to come, and we know he's going to come from Seth and, and from Noah and from Shem and then from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then who? Judah. In Genesis 49, when God is saying, who is the chosen one of this family line, he doesn't take Reuben. He doesn't take Simeon. He doesn't take Levi. He doesn't take Joseph. Joseph is going to be the focus of the entire story. But who is the one that he'll choose that will be the progenitor of the Messiah, the one who will be the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus? It's Judah. He says the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, meaning the Messiah. So he's going to be the one. And then you get to Revelation, and what is one of the favorite titles of Jesus? You remember Revelation chapter 5, John sees the, 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 the scroll that's got these seven seals, and he starts crying. Nobody's able to open. Nobody's worthy to open the scroll. And you remember one of the elders looks at John and says, stop crying. And he says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And you read Genesis 38 and you say, why in the world would God ever want to associate himself with that loser? And I think there's an important lesson God wants us to see. We could talk about 15 different principles and lessons in this chapter, but I think there's one that you can't miss. So let's just consider this for a moment as we consider, just to kind of give you a recap of this chapter, not that we want to go into all the gory details, which we won't do this morning because it, most of it's self-explanatory. Um, and we don't want to, right? You know, I mean, I got kids. You, know, you want to do something humbling? Read through the Bible with your children. And you begin to read these stories in a whole new light when you realize your 11-year-old son's reading them too. And we're going to sit around the table and talk tonight. And we're just praying some questions don't come up, you know. But uh, this is one of those chapters. But it's here. What is God trying to teach us? Well, the first thing that you see is this Judah, this, this one who is going to be God's chosen child. He is a sinner. And boy, we don't have to look, look too long to, to see it. In fact, we knew that Judah was sinful prior to Genesis 38 because in Genesis 37, he's the ringleader. He's the guy who decides, let's kill this boy. I'm worn out with his dreams. Let's kill Joseph. And you'll remember, you might say, well, the, in the story, he's actually the one that says, don't kill him. Let's sell him. But listen, in Judah's mind, make no mistake about it, he thinks he's killing two birds with one stone. We're getting rid of him. He thinks he's as good as a dead man. And we're also going to profit off of it. I mean, this guy is sinful to his core. And then you get into Genesis chapter 38, and he's moving away from the family. Rather than staying close to the family of God, he's going to move away from the family of faith. In other words, it's telling us as soon as you pick up the story in Genesis 38, you got a boy right here who is rebelling against the things of God. And we see that in, in children from time to time, don't we? Who just say, I don't want anything to do with God. 
And he goes off and he's hanging out with the Canaanites. And his best friend becomes Hira. And every time he's around Hira, he gets into trouble. And we could sit and talk about that today too, couldn't we? That bad company corrupts good character. And you better watch who you hang around. But that's just a secondary point. This is a rebellious son. And he goes off and he marries a Canaanite. And you read this, you read the story, and there's no intimacy. There's no real love here. It's all carnal. It's all fleshly. It's all transactional. They don't even give you his wife's name. He just sees a certain woman. And he marries a Canaanite, which he knew God forbid, not because they were a different race or ethnicity. He forbid it because they didn't love God. It's the equivalent of the New Testament, don't be unequally yoked. But he's going to marry whoever he wants. It's not love, it is lust. And he has three boys, all of which will be godless boys. There's no foundation of the truthfulness and the morality of God in this home. I'm going to raise my boys however I want to raise my boys. Do you see this man here? This is an arrogant, prideful young man who has bowed his neck to God and said, I'm going to hang out with whoever I want to hang out with. I'm going to marry whoever I want to marry. I'm going to live however I want to live. I'm going to raise my family however I want to raise it. He's making one bad decision after another, rebelling against God, and it doesn't work out well. These three boys, they are incredibly godless. And they're particularly godless in how they treat Tamar. And it all occurs under Judah's watch. He takes Tamar and says, you're going to marry my eldest son, Ur. Ur is so evil, God just takes him out. And if there's one thing that's kind of another underlying theme in this that you see, and it's the heart of God in the entire Old Testament and New Testament, You don't mess with the vulnerable. You want to make God mad. You take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. You don't mess with widows. You don't mess with orphans. And you better not mess with children in general or you're going to make God really mad. And so this Ur, he's bad but God doesn't strike him until he gets married to Tamar. And this may be me going further than what God's word allows, but I think God had it in how he treated Tamar. And God says, you're done. I'm just taking you out. Some people say, my God doesn't really do it. Well, your God might not do that, but the God of the Bible does. Does God reserve the right to just take somebody when he wants to? It's called capital punishment. And God says, you're done. And God takes him. And then... Judah gives her to his secondborn, which is what he's supposed to do. This is called a Leverite marriage in that culture. And what would happen is a a woman, a widow who had no children, she was really in a hopeless situation. If her parents die, she's got nobody. She has no means of, of provision. She is hopeless economically. She is hopeless socially. And so what God commanded them to do, a father-in-law to do, because she was that father-in-law's responsibility. It was his job to provide for her and to provide an heir for her because not only was he continuing the line of the firstborn son, but he was providing hope. In fact, we could go on with this theme. You remember Boaz and the, the kinsman redeemer? This was serious business. You take care of your family. 
And so he gives her to Onan. But Onan, he doesn't want to give his elder brother a son. Because if she has a son with him, then that son's actually going to be named Ur. He'll be taking that name. And he'll be the number one heir to the family inheritance and blessing. So Onan, out of selfishness, in rebellion and disobedience to God, says, I'm not giving her a son. I ain't doing it. Because it would be detrimental to me. And God says, we'll just see about that. And God takes Onan. You got two boys that have no foundation in the truthfulness and the morality of God under the watchful care of Judah. And now they're in a bad spot. Now they're in a bad spot. Why? Because you just got two sons dead and you only got one remaining. And this is the firstborn, supposed to be the firstborn line. I mean, when you think about it, the whole royal line of God's purposes is now in jeopardy and dependent upon one son named Shelah. And Judah says she's already killed two boys because in his mind she's responsible. She ain't getting a third. I'm done. No more. And God says, well, we'll just see about that. See, this was Judah's responsibility. But he throws Tamar out. He says, I don't like her. She's already killed two of my boys. I wish she were dead. I wish she would go away. So he sends her off to her father's house. And he says, maybe when Shayla gets older, I'll give them to you. But scripture makes clear he has no inclination to ever give her a husband or offspring. He has thrown her off. She is abused and used. She's damaged goods. And he has said, I'm not going to do anything about her estate because I'm looking out for number one. Do you get the picture of Judah? He's as low as a guy can get. This is as immoral and worthless as a guy can be. But just when you think it couldn't get any worse, there's more. Because now his wife dies and time of mourning's over and he longs for a little companionship and Hira says, let's go to the sheep shearing party, which it was a party, and there would be temple prostitution there. Let's go hang out up there. And what does Tamar know? She knows what kind of man Judah is, doesn't she? She knows, given the right opportunity, she knows exactly what he'll do. She knows exactly how he'll act. And remember, she's a Canaanite, and she's looking at one of God's own children, and she knows that he's an immoral, deceitful liar. And she decides, I'm going to have a child one way or another. And she disguises herself as a temple prostitute, and she sets herself up by the side of the road. And guess what Judah does? Like the sinner that he is, he goes straight to her, and he propositions her. And she says, what will you give me? And he says, I forgot my wallet. <laughs> she says, well, what are you going to send? He says, well, I'll send you a goat in a couple of weeks. And she says, what pledge, what guarantee do I have that you're going to send me a goat? He says, what do you want? She says, I want your driver's license and your social security card. <laughs> and why does she do that? Because she knows Judah's a liar. And push comes to shove, he'll lie about it. It'll be her word against his. And she'll be destitute and killed. She needs proof positive that that child is his child. And he hands it over because he's only thinking out of lust. 
And he goes on his way, sends Hira, go pay the goat, can't find her. How foolish does he look? His best friend wandering the streets find a t- trying to find a prostitute so he can make payment. Can't find her. Says, stop looking. We're going to look really stupid if you keep this up. And he goes on his way. And Judah, what does he probably think? I got away with it. I'm doing whatever I want to do. And listen, how God responds to Ur and Onan is the exception. More often than not, when you act in immorality and sinfulness, God will not strike you dead immediately. But listen to me this morning. Sooner or later, your sin will find you out. You may hide it from a lot of people, but you can't hide it from God. And God knows what Judah did. And so everything's going great. He's thinking, I'm living however I want to live. God don't even care. Until three months later. And Tamar's pregnant. She can't hide it anymore. And word comes back to Judah. And technically, Tamar is betrothed to Shelah. So if she's pregnant, she just acted in adultery. In harlotry. And that was punishable by death. And so Judah says, what are we going to do with her? Let's burn her. Not just kill her. Burning of an individual was reserved for the severest of crimes. He wants her treated as harshly as she can possibly be treated. Isn't it interesting? This guy's got no problem seeing the sinfulness in somebody else. But he can't see this huge log in his own eye. As soon as I say that, you know what Scripture says? Paul says to the Corinthians, Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel and the glorious face of Christ. Prior to coming to faith in Christ, and you know this, if you've gone out to share the gospel with anybody, to share the good news of Jesus Christ, you know one of the, the, the number one greatest challenge that you have is the same greatest challenge that Jesus faced when he told people about his salvation. It was getting people to admit that they're a sinner. And it's interesting, if you've done this, people have no problem telling you all about the sins of everybody else. But they can't see their own sin. And because they can't see their own sin, they can't see their need of a Savior. Why don't I need a Savior? I'm a pretty good person. Well, in comparison to a bunch of other sinners, you might look pretty good. But they can't see their own sin, and they can't see their need of a Savior. And that's exactly where Judah is until what happens. It's the only way any of us ever get saved. Some, at some point or another, God's got to pull back the blinders and let us see the depth of our sin. And so he says, burn her. They start to bring her out. And she says, before you burn me, do you recognize any of these items? And you know what's interesting about that? When she says, do you recognize these items? Remember, Judah is the one that took the coat of Joseph, tore it to pieces, and dipped it into blood. And he brought it back to his daddy Jacob. Do you remember what he says? Do you recognize this? He was deceiving his daddy. And now his own deception has come back on him. And guess what God is doing? He's forcing Judah to get downwind of himself and to smell his own stench. He's taking a mirror and he's putting it in front of Judah's face so that he's confronted with the depth of his own sin. And in that moment, God awakens Judah to the depth of his own sin. 
And Judah says, she is more righteous than me. Now, don't miss that statement. That's huge. That's a statement that you underline. Because what Judah is saying, he's saying, I'm the sinner. She shouldn't die. I should. He's finally come to his senses. He's finally, like that prodigal son falling face down in the mud, realized that he is a sinner and he needs salvation. I believe that is Judah's conversion moment. And you say, well, pastor, how do you know that Judah's converted at that moment? Well, I think you see it as you play out the rest of Judah's life. You get further down the story, and in Genesis 42, you remember there's a famine. I'm giving you a sneak preview on what's coming, but there's a famine in the land. And Jacob sends his boys to Egypt Because it's the only place that's got food because Joseph's there. He sends them over to Egypt to get food. And they go and, and you remember Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And he sends them with some food and he says, you can come and get some, but but I'm going to keep Simeon and you can't get any more until you bring Benjamin back, your youngest brother. And so they go back to Jacob and they tell Jacob, we got food and we can go back and get more, but we got to take Benjamin. And what does Jacob say? Not taking Benjamin. I've already lost Joseph. I ain't getting rid of Benjamin. You can't take him. Well, things get really, really bad. And Reuben comes to him and says, Dad, we got to go get food. And he says, Dad, you can kill my sons. Take Benjamin. The surety for his salvation will be my boys. You can kill them. And that does nothing for Jacob. But guess what Judah does? Judah steps forward and says, let me take Benjamin. And if Benjamin dies, what does he say? Take my life. Now you're starting to see a change in this sinful, selfish boy as he's willing to lay down his own life for a brother he hated. And the story goes on. You remember he takes Benjamin with him and Joseph there, he does what? He gives him some food, but he puts his own personal cup in whose bag? Benjamin's. It's a test. It's a test for Judah. Joseph wants to know, is this boy really changed? Is he the same selfish sinner that sold me down the road? Or is he truly changed by the grace of God? And you remember, they drag the brothers back, and Judah stands before Joseph, and it's the longest speech in the book of Genesis. And at the end of that speech, do you know what Judah says? You could take my life, but not him. How do you know you're a Christian? How do you know that you know that you know that you're a Christian? Well, you say, well, I walked an aisle one day. I got my baptism certificate. But how do we know? How do my two boys know that they're my boys? They can show you a birth certificate. That's all well and good, but you might be able to doctor one of those. How do you know that my two boys are my two boys? Because eventually, and unfortunately for them, they will begin to look and act like me. How do you know that you're a child of God? Because if you're his, eventually you'll begin to live and to act like him. Do you know the greatest demonstration of salvation in Judah's life? It's the fact that he's willing to give up his own life for the salvation of his younger brother that he hated. And we never, we never look more like God than when we sacrifice our own lives for the salvation of another individual. Salvation has come to Judah's life. And now God will say, that's my boy. 
he once was lost, but now he's found. He was a selfish sinner, and now he is a sacrificial savior who represents me. And now my son will be known as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And how does all this make any sense? It only makes sense on the basis of the grace of God. This is amazing grace. See, the grace of God, it humbles the prideful. Remember, the original readers of this text were who? Moses wrote this, and he reads it originally to the Israelites as they're moving out beyond the exodus. And you can only imagine the Israelites, they've they've just been protected by God and they've just left Egypt without firing a shot and the Egyptians have contributed to the Exodus Fund and the waters parted in front of them and they're thinking, boy, aren't we great? Aren't we good? That we're God's chosen people because we were so handsome and beautiful and smart and strong that God just said, boy, I gotta have them people. And do you know why I think God included Genesis 38? No, 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 no. Let's remember where you came from. You guys are nothing but sinners saved by my grace. In fact, you know, the, 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 the title Jew comes from the name Judah. Every time they said their name, they were reminded that we are nothing apart from the grace of God. The grace of God humbles the proud. You know one of the great dangers for us as Christians? Is that God would save us from our sinfulness and we'd start to move beyond our salvation. That we'd get to a point that we would start to think, boy, God is lucky to have me on his team. I show up to church and I serve and I don't know what he'd do without me. And do you know Genesis 38 is there to remind you, listen, you are nothing apart from the grace of God. Let us never forget where we came from. God includes all the warts in our genealogy to remind us, don't forget where you came from. But the grace of God also does what? It exalts the humble. It exalts the humble because some of you are here today and you're saying, boy, I'm up to my eyeballs in sin. And I can't imagine how God would ever save somebody like me. I feel like I'm too far gone. This passage is here to remind you that nobody is too far gone for God to save. Not only is nobody too far gone for God to save, nobody is too far gone for God to use for his glorious purposes. That's the of all this in Genesis. There's only one hero in Scripture. And it's Jesus. The only hero. Nobody else can take credit for anything. It's by God's grace through Jesus alone. And even Tamar. Tamar's a Canaanite. And she, to a large extent, by God's grace, single-handedly protects the royal line. And by her connection with this family... When you get over to Matthew chapter 1, and we don't have time this morning, but you get over to Matthew chapter 1, and it includes there the genealogy of Christ, doesn't it? Do you know in the genealogy of Christ, there's four women mentioned? Do you know who the first one is? 
Tamar. A Canaanite woman who disguised herself as a prostitute and had an incestual relationship with her father-in-law to produce a child that's eventually going to be in the line of Christ. Now, that's one of those family stories you don't tell at Thanksgiving. And guess who else is included? A woman by the name of Rahab. And she didn't pretend to be a harlot. She was a harlot. She ran a brothel in Jericho. And yet she believed in God and was the only one saved when Jericho fell. And story tells us that she went on to marry Salmon, who became the father of Boaz. And then the third woman is who? Ruth, the Moabitess. And where the Moabites come from? Well, remember old Lot? Goes off in the mountains with his two daughters. Ain't no other men around. They get daddy drunk. And they have children. And that's where the Moabites come from. And the fourth woman, Bathsheba. This is one messed up sinful family. But guess what? It's Jesus' family. You know, Herod, when he became king, he had his genealogy doctored. He blacked out all the blemishes and all the black sheep of the family so that it would appear as though he had pure, unblemished lineage. He didn't want to identify with the lowly. He didn't want to identify with the messed up. Folks, when Jesus comes, he comes in the lowest possible fashion, identifying with wretched, filthy sinners and Gentiles like you and me. God includes all the black sheep. Jesus' family includes prostitutes, kings, murderers, Canaanites, and they all gather around the same table because their connection and faith in one Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray that encourages you as much as it does me today. As one commentator put it, those names are included in that line that leads to Jesus so that your name and my name could be included in the line that leads from Jesus. I don't know your background today. I don't know what your past or your sins look like. But if you know that you're a sinner, see, God doesn't expect you to be perfect. But he expects you to be perfectly honest. Meaning you've got to own up to who you are. If today you know you're a sinner and you know you have no hope on your own, and if you'll turn to Jesus Christ for faith and salvation, today you can have your sins forgiven and you can become a part of the family of God. What a great love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called his children. There is room in God's family for you. That's the grace of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for including Genesis 38. This odd chapter that confuses us and we read it and we think, why is it here? And God, I believe that you wanted us to know that there's no one too far gone, no one beyond your reach, no one you can't save, no one you can't use. 
And God, I pray if there's anybody here today that like Judah, they have rebelled against you. They've gone their own way. They've bowed their neck and said, I'm smarter than that. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Go wherever I want to go. And maybe it appears right now that they're getting away with it. But God, I pray that in your grace, just like you did with us, you would shine the light of the truth of your word into their hearts so that they would see the depth of their own sin. God, I pray that you'd peel back the blinders from their eyes so that they could see the depth of their sin and they could see the beauty of their Savior, Jesus. And I pray that you'd so overwhelm them with your love that they couldn't help but run to you. Today, God, they'd be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your dear Son. They'd become a part of the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. God, for those of us that do know you, oh, I pray you'd never let, it, let us get so far removed from the moment of salvation where we start to think we're something. God, I pray every day we would get on our knees and praise you for the grace that saved us. And I pray that our lives would demonstrate our gratitude. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.